So, Mark. Yes? In this week's movie, basically whenever he gets super frustrated about anything, Kirk Cameron grabs his baseball bat, goes outside, and just wails on his trash can. It seems to be the only coping mechanism in his life. Well, he has another one, but he's trying to break that habit. Well, yes. I was shocked at the amount of discussion of porn there was in this movie. But always obliquely. Very obliquely. I laughed so hard when that pop-up came up on his computer, and he's, like, agonizing over it. We'll talk about this later. It is very funny that, like, when he's, like, considering looking at porn, it is the question of, like, is he gonna open a pop-up ad that's, like, see pictures of girls? And it's, like... The issue with this, honestly, is that if he clicks on it, his computer is going to get a virus. Yeah. <laughs> Internet safety issue number one. Right. Like, you would think, given the alleged amount of time that he has spent looking at porn on the internet, he would, like, have avenues of getting there that didn't rely on getting a pop-up ad. That computer is probably riddled with viruses and malware. Oh, yeah. And eventually, as we will discuss, he takes a baseball bat to the computer. So I was wondering, Mark, when you are frustrated, what is your method of physically driving out those demons? My go-to is I am a notorious paper shredder and label picker off of bottles. If I am frustrated or something, I will just tear paper into the smallest possible pieces and then get mad because I have to clean it up. So it's not exactly the best coping mechanism. And that's super But I guess it's the same as knocking over a trash can. Will you, like, will you tear a piece of paper up into tiny pieces and then start on a new piece of paper? If it's available. Okay. Because it's a way of kind of, it's not as obvious And so you can kind of hide it behind a smile while destroying a piece of paper. Sure, that makes sense. So, like, you could do that at work. Right. You could do that at work. You can do it other places. You just have to, you know, clean it up after, which is not fun. I'm trying to think of other things. Um, I mean, when I get really angry, one time I punched a wall, but... I didn't want to leave a mark, so I didn't punch it that hard. And then I was like, well, that was a waste of time. (laughs) I once kicked a cinder block wall when I was frustrated with something, but that just hurt my foot. I know. That's the problem with walls, is they're much stronger than the TV leads you to believe. Right. Like, a a year or two or, I don't know, a couple years ago, some students asked me, like, what do you do when you're, like, stressed out? I'm like, oh, you know, I, like, go for a walk, or I'll try to watch something funny to distract me, or... I will play violent video games. And like, honestly, that's my go-to. If I'm really frustrated with something, Halo Reach is going in the Xbox where they'll just send waves and waves of aliens at you and I can just focus on taking care of them. My problem is video games have triggered my anger to the point where Nick has made me turn off the console and I'll be going in in a good mood. It's very funny, like, during the first window where my now wife and I were living together i was playing my way through jedi fallen order and every boss battle i would be like yelling at the tv and she'd be like are you having fun and i'm like yes i'm having fun (laughs) yeah i'm having the time of my life (laughs) and so what i had to do eventually was during boss battles i would mute the tv and play like nice folk music to just like make for a more calm environment and it did work the worst for me is playing assassin's creed 
when you just like your character just runs and jumps off buildings rather than up or the worst the free running controls get really wonky because i will start screaming like you absolute idiot just grab the wall just climb just climb just grab the wall and nick will be like okay i think we need to take a break and it's and always it's not when you're doing one of those stupid races battle yeah it's the races that get me and then i end up having to fight the like 30 guards that you have to kill if you don't catch the messenger in time or yeah. whatever Ugh. what about you so i feel like the closest I get to letting out frustration in an active physical way is I will sometimes go for a run. But usually if I do that when I'm angry, I end up running way too fast. And also my heart rate might already be a little elevated because I'm angry. And so then I get frustrated because the run is not going as well as I would like it to. So sometimes the running helps, but not always. I am a cursor when I'm really angry. I don't like to cuss people out, but I don't like other people seeing me when I'm really angry generally just because I like to calm down before I interact with people. So I will try to go off on my own and then it calms me to just kind of chant curse words over and over to myself. Like a mantra. Yeah, honestly, yes. I uh, um, I won't get into them here because this is a uh, family show, I think. I don't know. We talk, we're going to talk a, a lot about porn in this episode. This is I'm a guessing. godly episode. This is a godly episode. So um, I have different curse word mantras or like strings of how I put the curse words together for... If I'm like mad at somebody else or frustrated with myself or like I have specific go to uh, vulgar, not really vulgar, it's just bad words, but like bad word chants for different frustrations. I like that you use the word chant because it to me summons a a Gregorian atmosphere of, of monks and long held notes. So I don't know that it's monks and long-held notes, but my ideal situation for doing this is like in my bedroom in the dark. So I can just, it's meditative almost, but it's meditative cursing. I had never fully interrogated this. So that's probably why I calmed down because I'm basically meditating because I'm just focusing on the sound of these bad words. If it works, it works. It works. But I did, if you will allow me, want to tell a story about... Uh, destroying objects in one's driveway. Oh. My parents bought the house that I grew up in a couple of years before I was born. And as soon as they moved in, my mom said, you know, this is a great house. There's not that much renovation we need to do on it. Like the past owners didn't have terrible choice in wallpaper or anything, but I really hate this specific toilet there were three bathrooms in this house and there was one toilet like what was wrong with it was it a weird color it was dark brown oh gross. like it was not pretty ew it's like a wood paneled toilet basically well it was porcelain but it was dark brown porcelain so you know and it just you know kind of dragged the room down because it's this dark brown but she hated this toilet and she had been saying since they moved in since before i was born that she wanted to changed the toilet but they had other priorities for their house money like they had a child and then they had another child and so they wanted to 
make like nice nurseries. And then once you have kids, you have a lot less uh, discretionary income to do things. So it was not until I was 14 or 15 that they finally had the money to redo this bathroom and got a like normal white toilet. And as I'm thinking about this, I guess they were able to redo the bathroom when I was a little younger, maybe 11 or 12. But the story that I'm about to tell takes place when I was 15. Because for like three years, this brown toilet just lived in our backyard. I just can't get over brown toilet. It's so on the nose. (laughs) That's just so gross sounding. Yeah. And it, it was dark brown. Right. Poop colored. Darker than if your poop was this color, then something is wrong with you. Okay, like dark brown. So it sits outside for three years. Does it become like a bird bath in that window? You could build it into like a garden feature. My parents hid Easter eggs in it one year. Okay, but it, it lived there. They didn't just get rid of it because my mom felt that the toilet needed to be dealt with appropriately, and her plan was she wanted to throw it out a second story window in our house. And my dad said, absolutely not. That is not safe. I don't care that you hate this toilet. You are not doing that. And she said, okay. And then it took her a little time to decide what she wanted to do next, which is why the toilet was just sitting in our backyard. She had to figure out what she wanted to do next. And then she had to find someone from whom she could borrow a sledgehammer. And she finally tracked one down and she... One day, when I was about 15, put the toilet in the driveway and took a sledgehammer to it. And I don't think this was out of anger. Like, she was so happy. I have seen her that happy other times, but not many other times. Like, this was a really wonderful experience for her. So it's not exactly the same as beating your trash can with a baseball bat out of frustration. I think it was the joy of finally vanquishing an enemy of hers. But any time in a movie that I see somebody wailing on an object in their driveway, I think of my mom in the toilet. I have always wanted, not going to lie, to go to one of those, like, smash em up places. I once got to smash up a, like, semi-rotted picnic table with a sledgehammer, and it was a good time. I think I, when we moved out of our house in Georgia... We had to break apart a desk with a sledgehammer, and that was honestly extremely fun. Yeah, it rules. Now, speaking of Georgia. Oh my god, yes. (laughs) Should we talk about this extremely Georgia movie? Yeah, oh god, boy, was it set in Georgia. I want to make make a Georgia, raise a Georgia question as we enter into this. I sat through the entire credits of this movie. Okay, that was a choice you made. Yeah, I just kind of needed to take in everything the movie had to offer to me. I had to get asked multiple times if my marriage was fireproof. I did notice that there was a credited construction assistant named James Carter. And like, that's probably not former President Jimmy Carter, but this is a Christian production in Georgia. And it does feel like not completely out of the realm of possibility that he would volunteer to help on construction. Jimmy Carter, famously into construction, might be willing to help out on this movie. Um, how far is Albany from Plains? I don't think he was doing as much traveling, even back then. He Let's find planes. out. I also just feel like you are trying to find a way to make this very boring movie more intriguing. I kept doing that as I watched it. 
I think there's a gay reading of this movie that is never contradicted. When he walks into her bedroom and she's sick, my first thought was, <gasps> Phantom Thread. Okay, it's only a 42-minute drive from Albany to Plains. Yeah, it's much closer than I realized. I'm not saying Jimmy Carter helped on this movie, but I'm not also not saying he didn't. What about Anna Kendrick? So I'm pretty sure that Anna Kendrick is not the famous Anna Kendrick. Okay, but can you be sure? It seems at least as likely as that Jimmy Carter did construction on this movie. Except that, like, the only thing going with Anna Kendrick is we know this was made by people named Kendrick, and Anna's a decently common name. This is James Carter in Georgia, Christian construction. These are all things that go together. Was this movie filmed in Georgia? I did not read much about this movie. Uh, Don't worry. We've got plenty to talk about. Uh, The movie was filmed in Georgia, basically all in Albany. We'll get into it. We should start the episode. Yes. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the very least important issue facing today's world. Does independent church-produced movie romance actually make any sense? (laughs) And is your marriage fireproofed? And also... (laughs) Are these people dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We are going to dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are taking a look at the Kendrick Brothers 2008 film, Fireproof. And we're joined by our good friend Rachel to talk about it. Hello! I have to say, I am so glad that I will get to discuss this movie with two married men. Because I think... That is the only audience intended for this movie? Yes, this movie is by and for dudes. Married dudes. Yes, married dudes who do need to learn how to have a basic conversation with their wife. It's funny because I rented this and then the next day I rented Gladiator and watched that. And I think I sent you both a picture of my just rental list on the AMC app where I was like, Fireproof gladiator. This makes me look like a very specific type of, like, 50-year-old evangelical man. You're not wrong. But I need to address something at the beginning. And that's the fact that this movie made 66 times its budget. Yes! It was a huge hit! At the box office. And I lived in Georgia when this came... I was moving when this came out. And I have never heard of this movie before. What? Okay, This came up, we decided to do this on our mother episode, where we were just talking about, like, Christian media, and I said that we needed to cover Fireproof. You had never heard of it before. And so, Mark, it's difficult to explain, and I think, Rachel, you probably got a lot more of it than I did, because I was Catholic, and so I was, you know, orbiting all of this, but not as immersed. This was, like, a phenomenon in American Christianity. The number of people I know who did the love dare with their spouse and then documented the journey via their Facebook statuses. That can't be real. Including, in fact, someone whose husband was a firefighter. Okay, so I looked it up, and this movie came out a little under two months after I moved to Singapore, and I think that explains how I missed it. You made it out just in time. Yeah, I remember seeing the DVD and the book on sale in my grocery store. Is this based off a book? No. So we'll get into like the Kendrick brothers and their whole deal. But the short version of getting to the book is that they wrote this movie, which involves like the dad and the handwritten book. He sends the book of like, here's how to save your marriage advice to his son. 
And they wrote the movie, and that's that. And then they decided after the fact, the Kendrick brothers who wrote it, Alex Kendrick directed it, Stephen Kendrick produced it. They then actually wrote the book and sold it. Of course they did. So, the funniest thing about this movie to me is some of the stuff included in The Love Dare was not terrible advice that a lot of men do need to learn. Which is, be nice to your spouse. (laughs) It's a a lot of, like, don't take your wife for granted. Yeah. Help out around the house. Make her feel appreciated. Tell your wife you love her. Things that you really shouldn't need a book and a Bible verse to tell you how to do. It should just be part of being married. And yet it does seem very difficult for some people. So do you think the actual, like, Love Dare book similarly is just kind of normal good advice and bible verses or do we think it's like like do you want it i haven't bought you a christmas present oh wait me i thought you were asking rachel no you um i i'm gonna see if the library has it (laughs) maybe i'll put it that way well in fact i can tell you the library does have it because i checked it out and read all 206 (laughs) pages of it for this friggin episode and let me tell you it is so much worse than the movie is Rachel, uh, you and Will, oh my god. <laughs> you explicitly implied to me that you had not. So, I am not sure when in this episode you all want to get in to the material contained in the book, because as I said, I think it is so much worse than anything in the movie, but if we want to do just... I can't believe you read this. Just a t- I'm committed to this episode. Just a, a tiny bit, a tiny taste right now. Again, I think this was largely written for, well, this book was written by married men. It is trying to address both married men and women, obviously, who are only married to each other because that is the way God intended. But I um, took a note on a uh, particular quote that I thought might kind of sum the book up well. and. Will, as the only straight married man here, so the person for whom the book was intended, I was hoping you might be willing to read it for us. All right. I'm almost afraid to. Let's be honest. Men struggle with thoughtlessness more than women. A man can focus like a laser on one thing and forget the rest of the world. Whereas this can benefit him in that one area, it can make him overlook other things that need his attention. A woman, on the other hand, is more multi-conscious, able to maintain an amazing awareness of many factors at once. She can talk on the phone, cook, know where the kids are in the house, and wonder why her husband isn't helping all simultaneously. Both of these tendencies are examples of how God designed women to complete their men. And then, is this the psalm that's cited beneath it? Oh, no, that is a reference to another page with another quote that oh, okay, I cool. might bring up later in the episode. All right. Um, I love this, like, gender essentialism, women complete their husband by doing everything at home. Well, the thing is, in this book, and I think this comes out not as strongly in the movie, but is really a thread here, it is heavily implied that there is no situation in which your wife would work outside the house. Again, I say your wife, because although this is ostensibly written for both men and women, I felt that it really focused on the husband part. 
I mean, I do think, like, Kirk Cameron's character in the movie has this, like, pseudo-resentment towards his wife for working outside the home, where, like, on the one hand, they, like, clearly need the money, and she's right about it, but he also is, like, complaining, like, well, you didn't have to work full-time. It's interesting, because I didn't feel that the movie judged her that much for working. No, I mean, it's the interesting thing of, like, he is the clear villain. Yeah. He is portrayed as the primary problem in the marriage, and it's his lack of awareness that is the bigger thing. Like, the movie basically says her resentment is justified. Right. But in this book, I felt like all of the advice is predicated on the idea that the wife is working at home and the husband is out earning money. And that even comes up of, like, you know, are you resenting your husband for not giving you enough attention when in fact you should be respecting that he is serving as the breadwinner? And are you being resentful toward your wife that you are having to put in all this work and she doesn't appreciate you? But do you realize that she's actually doing work too when she's at home? I really think this movie seems to have toned down the book to make it more appealing to a broader audience. See, I don't even know if that's true because I'm curious about like what the imagined audience for this movie is like 2008 is a very different moment in christian film like explicitly christian like evangelical filmmaking than yeah like 2020 is and like actually like fireproof is one of the turning point movies in that because like before this period you don't really have film studios bankrolling or distributing christian films for the most part, like an individual church will take it on itself to produce a movie and then they will like kind of mm-hmm. distribute it themselves to other churches. And that's kind of how right. this is set up where like Alex and Stephen Kendrick were pastors at like Sherwood Baptist Church in Georgia and they like use church resources to make this movie. Like everything is donated. All of the actors are volunteers. They put the whole thing together for half a million dollars. But it comes out at this window where there's more opening to this. Like, on the one hand, their previous movie, which was called Facing mm-hmm. the Giants, and it's like a Christian... Which slaps! Is, is it good? I have seen oh, Facing no. the Giants, but I remember nothing of it. No, no, no. It's so bad, but it made a really big impression on me as a child. That's like a Christian, like, high school... Fo- it's like, um, what if there was a movie of Friday Night Lights, and it was, like, really Christian and not very good? The other mm-hmm. thing is, what this movie taught me is that if in your life, there is just like something smells rotten then perhaps there is a dead mouse in your kitchen and once you find it and throw it away your marriage will get a lot better oh i do remember that you guys have watched a lot more of these types of movies than i have oh definitely the other thing i learned is that if you are really good at being a football coach maybe the team will buy you a new car oh that's cool and like that one alex kendrick also is the star of it like he plays the football coach so, like, that's kind of the world that these Christian movies used to be in. So something like like Facing the Giants, it's produced by a church. It only stars church people. It's going to be distributed by the church. And if it, like, has enough of a sheen of quality, like that one did, then it'll get a little bit of buzz and make some money. And sneak its way over mm-hmm. to Oklahoma a few states over where children will be made to watch it during youth group. I mean, that's the thing. A lot of these become youth group movies. They become, like, church movie night movies. And that had been a big enough hit. And then along with it, of course, is Passion of the Christ. That one I have watched as part of youth group. There you go. And it's a weird thing to remember. Passion of the Christ became the most successful R-rated film ever. And it held the title of, like, biggest box office for an R-rated movie for, like, 12 years. 
And what's really moving about that movie is, you know, Mel Gibson produced it, directed it. Um, uh, yes and yes. And I'm... in the scene where you see Jesus being nailed to the cross, there's like a close-up shot of the nail being driven into his arm. And those are Mel Gibson's hands. Gross to demonstrate that he recognizes that he is a sinner. And I learned that from the book series, Diary of a Teenage Girl, a Christian teen girl book series that we should discuss sometime. <sighs> wow. I think the funniest thing about Passion of the Christ for me is when I watched it, people talked about how Catholic it was specifically. Because there is still a weird anti-Catholic bias in a lot of American religion. Yeah. And of course, Mel Gibson also is like a weird, like, set of vacantist Vatican II denier. Like, he's he is far from being a mainstream Catholic. Yeah. But everyone, a lot of Protestants were talking about how big of a role Mary had because of the whole, like, Virgin Mary worship criticism, which is really funny. Will, you might have been too young for this to really make an impact on you, but was Passion of the Christ a nice thing? Just thinking about, I feel like Christian pop culture is often kind of dominated by the evangelical section of Protestantism, but is still very Protestant, but I feel like Catholics still try to get in on it to some extent because it is christian pop culture and so well catholics are absolutely trying to like (laughs) like mimic christian pop culture or you know engage in it but was this a nice thing for catholics to be able to be like we have something now that is ours or is mel gibson too far outside the mainstream for it to really register and resonate in the same way i think the simplest answer is i was too young to really be aware of it i have never seen passion of the christ i think i will never see passion of the christ i'm sure there were people who reacted that way they're like oh yes look at this catholic movie that's a big hit but yeah i mean a lot of the like most controversial mel gibson stuff comes at the time of passion at least as far as i'm aware of it comes at the time of passion of the christ or in the years following so i don't know that there was as much awareness of his sort of crackpot theology But, I mean, the reason we wound up here is because that was, like, such a big hit that then a lot of studios were like, okay, we're going to try to get in on this, like, Christian market because there's clearly an opening for this. There were, like, tons of, like, church groups would, like, rent out screenings of Passion of the Christ and bring everybody there. It had this wild box office run. And so then, in the wake of that, like, Fireproof is distributed by Sam Goldwyn Films. 20th Century Fox actually developed a division called Fox Faith that was going to make faith-based movies. And it shuddered pretty quickly, but, like, there was this sense of, oh, there's a market here. And so Fireproof is is still a church production, but it's coming in this window, and they got actual distribution, and off their half a million dollar budget, as Mark alluded to, they made $33 million. I think one of the lessons that people kind of failed to take away from Passion of the Christ in the wake of the phenomenon is that Passion of the Christ is also a technically well done movie like people forget like passion of the christ is a lot but it is also a movie like there is a plot people talk well in aramaic but so it's hard to say but like the dialogue seems to work there is creative elements in the direction there is good art design like all of the elements of a good movie about jesus 
but a lot of the lessons were, oh, we could make this cheaper and just about Jesus, and it will do just as well. And apparently for this one, it did. Yeah, but not but all of them hit like that. It does feel like something like Nativity Story or Noah are more akin to Passion of the Christ in terms of channeling what made it successful rather than this or like God's Not Dead. But of course, by the time Noah's coming out, God's Not Dead exists and that Christian audience goes all in on God's Not Dead and gets really angry about Noah. And like Christianity Today got a ton of mail for having a positive review of Noah where people are like, this doesn't match the Bible. Well, also people were probably just mad because it said climate change is real and should be fought and the American Christian audience doesn't really isn't receptive to that messaging. Yeah, which I think is interesting because if you look at especially like the 70s and 80s, there is a pretty significant environmental stewardship movement within, I think, both the Catholic and Protestant churches, mainline Protestant churches, at least. I grew up very mainline Protestant, which meant I touched a lot on evangelical culture, but I think had a lot more of it than either of you probably did, but I was still not fully immersed in it. Don't speak for me, Rachel. (laughs) Don't speak for me. I think I was just as in tune, if not more, with full evangelical culture. (laughs) Yeah, I honestly, I was saying that more because you moved to Singapore in 2008, right? And I feel like... I guess I did miss... I think the Yeah, the kind of mainstreaming of evangelical culture where there start to be more, like, crossover bands, for example. And simultaneously, there's more crossover, but also specifically within the music scene, I think the early 2010s is when Christian music starts to fully develop its own sound rather than being more of a mirror of whatever happens to be popular in secular music at the time. And so I... Mm. Definitely would not argue that you had as much as, if not more than I did in terms of evangelical culture before you moved to Singapore. I think it is also significant that the real boom of evangelical culture as a fully developed subculture in the medium of the time, since back in the early to mid 2000s, it was to some extent still caught up in radio, which was no longer significant means that maybe you were still getting it to the same extent I was, but you were not in the country for the boom. Is that fair to say, do you think? I did listen to quite a bit of 104.7 The Fish whenever I came back (laughs) to the States over the summer. I think part of it too, if we're talking about this timeline, Rachel, is that, you know, Mark, you left the country in 2008 and you think about the arc of the mainstreaming of evangelicalism over the course of the Bush era and how, sure, like the first evangelical president was a possible construction assistant on this movie, James Carter, but Bush foregrounded that sort of thing with the compassionate conservatism thing like so much more strongly. And that identity really in the Bush era came to be so tightly wrapped up into conservative politics that that's what we see in general in the culture if you're talking about things like climate but also in these movies as you go forward. So if you're watching something like God's Not Dead, by that point you are seeing something with much more of a political mindset than even Fireproof just coming in 2008. I also think in terms of this timing, it's interesting to think about this rise in a fully developed Christian subculture at the same time as social media becoming extremely, excuse me, extremely prevalent on the one hand, because it means that that friend you met at church camp or at winter jam or whatever can be someone you stay in touch with on a more ongoing 
basis. Mm -hmm. But also at the same time, that's encouraging people to form parasocial relationships with these Christian singers and actors and celebrity pastors. And also there is now to some extent more accountability for their behavior because if there's some scandal that they're involved in, it's not just the people in their church who are hearing about it. It's everybody hearing about it pretty instantaneously before they've had the chance to put on the press circuit as the Christian magazines start to pick it up. But I think that that parasocial, like increased parasocial relational aspect with the people driving Christian culture in the early 2010s and beyond also affects the development of the Christian subculture. I think one of the reasons I wasn't as tapped into it is because my family liked good movies too much to <laughs> like to actually watch movies like Fireproof because my mom is a huge movie buff and is just like even if the message resonates with the faith in Georgia and all that my family was like well I think we'd rather watch a good movie <laughs> well I mean also your mom is specifically a big James Bond fan. My mom does love James Bond. And, you know, I think this movie is, and this sort of era of Christian culture that we're talking about is this whole, like, you know, being, you know, in the world, but not of the world and sort of rejecting the dangers of secular culture. And that kind of language shows up a lot in the press around this movie. But the Kendrick brothers talk about how they wrote Facing the Giants, the football movie, after reading a survey that said films were now more influential than church. And so you have to make your films the place where people are going to get the moral message. And I read this long interview with Stephen Kendrick where he talked about this. And he complained extensively about how, like, movies used to be moral. And movies used to be places where you'd see the good guys win and the bad guys lose. And they weren't going to give young people bad ideas. He went on this whole tangent about, like, you know, it used to be a crime in this country to do anything that would contribute to the delinquency of a minor. <laughs> Which, those were bad laws mostly used to target comic books. Don't forget black people. But he also specifically called out James Bond movies as being an example of this societal decay, where he talks about how James Bond used to be an upstanding hero. What? But now James Bond is just drinking too much booze, sleeping with women all the time. We don't have heroes in movies anymore. They cast Sean Connery to play James Bond. That's the thing about I just watched The Man with the Golden Gun, like, the day before I saw Fireproof, and I was like, James Bond tries to have sex with literally every woman on screen in this movie. Also, Sean Connery was probably as drunk, if not drunker, than James Bond on screen backstage. I mean, that's a- clearly that interview was just a reaction to Casino Royale having just come out and being genuinely a grittier Bond, but yeah. a ludicrous example to grab onto. I want to read a quote from this Stephen Kendrick interview that he gave while Fireproof was in production. He said, How many movies and musicians are communicating a message that is leading the next generation to live violent, immoral, atheistic lives? We have to come back to looking at what God's word says. It says whatever's true, lovely, excellent, and praiseworthy is what we're supposed to be meditating on. We're supposed to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. David slept with Bathsheba, there is violence in scripture, but you don't hear the details of what he did with Bathsheba. You do. What? Though. He's basically being like, the Bible does not turn into like a porno explaining the details of their sex night. And that's the bar you should hold yourself to. That scene is horny, though. 
That's really interesting given that in the book The Love Dare, they go out of their way to say that everyone's favorite book of the Bible, Song of Solomon, is not just an allegory about God's love for people. It is also showing what should be the marital sexual relationship between husband and wife. So I feel oh, like really? there are really some double standards here. There's like a fair amount of like some church teachings that get pretty explicit about how man and wife should pleasure each other in the bedroom. And like, it is good for you and your wife to be good at sex. That is a messaging I would get at youth group as a teen. I am going to flip to and read you the dare in the love dare from day 32, which is love meets sexual needs. Today's dare. If at all possible, try to initiate sex with your husband or wife today. Do this in a way that honors what your spouse has told you or implied to you about what they need from you sexually. Ask God to make this enjoyable for both of you as well as a path to greater intimacy. Which actually sounds surprisingly okay, right? Yes. Until you think about the fact that in the actual Love Dare book, every day has a theme where it starts with love is something. So this was love is like sexual fulfillment or whatever. And then it has like three pages about that, usually kind of grounded in scripture and then the dare itself. And in the section before you get to the dare, it explicitly says that if your spouse wants to have sex, even if you do not feel like it, you have a duty as their spouse to meet their sexual needs. Seems bad. Which is, you know, I think inappropriate. Nobody should be having sex if they don't want to. But I don't know that people always realize the perniciousness of this principle within the church. I was literally in college before I, you know, realized, found out, whatever, that it was okay for a wife to say to her husband, I don't feel like having sex right now. And I, that is nothing on my parents. They, I think, raised me with very good values. But just because I was coming across this idea in my church and in culture more generally, the idea that you could say, I don't feel like that and that is fully okay. Literally, I was in, I think, my 20s, which is really dangerous. And I think that that comparison highlights why this book is so dangerous because, you know, the dare itself seems fine. And like, you know, it is promoting kind of an equal sexual partnership, but everything leading up to that, or at least some of what's leading up to that is pretty damaging or has the potential to be not only if you're saying to yourself, I have a responsibility to meet my spouse's sexual needs whenever and however they want, but also if you internalize my spouse has a responsibility to meet my sexual needs whenever and however I want. So kind of the clothing and respectability and clothing in equality of these messages is what I think makes it so dangerous. It is funny because it just sounds like this movie took the like core, not bad to good advice. And then the book just expands on it and makes it as toxic as possible. Because in the movie, it's like, give your wife a gift. 
buy her flowers. And it's like judging him for half-assing it. And it's like, buy her flowers she would like. And then in the book, it's like, buy her flowers because she deserves them for raising your children and taking care of the house and not working and being your servant. Well, in fact, Mark, you have led in so nicely to the next quote from this book that I wanted to read you. This is from Day 38, Love Fulfills Dreams, and the general idea is you should at times be extravagant in getting your spouse what they want and what will make them happy. But after a couple pages of that, like, would they like a better car? Would they like a diamond necklace? Would they like to go on a Caribbean cruise with you? These are good dreams. I'm glad we're focused on this. We get to, not everything your spouse wants has a hefty price tag or can even be bought with money. Fine. You can secretly tackle a big project that has been on your mate. They use the word mate a lot. <laughs> you could Yikes. secretly tackle a big project that has been on your mate's wish list for months. Get rid of that brown toilet. Or really, your wife may just want your time and attention at home. She may want to be treated like a lady and know that her husband considers her a cherished treasure. She may want a warm embrace and to see in your eyes a love that chooses her all over again and will be there no matter what. Your husband, the main thing he may want is just some greater respect. He may want you to acknowledge him as the head of the house in front of the children. He may want you to surprise him with a long kiss. How long? Or a love note. We got a timestamp. Or invite him home for lunch with you as the dessert. Whoa! When there's not even a birthday or anniversary to justify it. He may need to know that you still think he's strong and handsome to you. It's just, it's like an extravagant gift can cost a lot of money, but also doesn't have to. Good advice. And then it goes straight into make sure your children know that he is the head of the house and you ha- you respect him as your like lord and master. Mark, I think there's one thing about this movie that illustrates the kind of, like, rigid patriarchal Christianity that it's all about. And Rachel, I think you know where I'm going with this. All the actors in the movie are people from Sherwood Baptist Church, except for our star, Kirk Cameron. Oh my god, I read about this. I looked it up. Who became a born-again Christian while he was still on Growing Pains. And he married Chelsea Noble, who was also on Growing Pains. And Kirk Cameron, devout Christian, believer in his vision of biblical marriage, refuses to kiss anyone but his wife, including on screen. So there's only one kiss in this movie. It's at the very end, and it's backlit so that you just see Caleb and Catherine in silhouette because they have swapped out Aaron Bathia, the actress who plays Catherine, for Kirk Cameron's wife so that he can kiss his wife and not anyone else. I read that, and I said, okay, (laughs) that's all I could say. It's so funny to me. And again, I think oh my that God. this sort of thing is like, kind of like, okay, you're an actor. It feels like this is, you know, maybe part of your job, but it's also just kind of funny. Like, you kind of have to laugh at it. But to me, frankly, it doesn't feel that different from, I think, there are now several politicians we're aware of who are unwilling to meet with female colleagues. alone because they feel that it would be inappropriate in terms of their marriage or that's a boundary in their marriage and while i do really support people in relationships being clear about their boundaries and what they are comfortable with number one there are some things to ask that are too much number two it's implying that either this woman that he might be meeting with cannot be trusted 
or seductress. seductress or he cannot be trusted in which case why is he not in intensive therapy i think it's mostly that men in general cannot be trusted men are incapable of not being tempted by other women no matter what the woman does it's not even saying like every woman outside of your marriage is a Jezebel. It's that all men are trash who can't be trusted <laughs> around other women. Which is kind of an idea promoted by this movie. Like it really feels like, number one, you cannot have a good and happy marriage unless you are Christian and not just like Christian, but like fully devoted Christian. But also you are going to suck unless you actively work to overcome it and your marriage's natural state is being really bad unless you have these secret steps to make it be okay and like it reminds me a little bit of that whole kind of meme in making fun of evangelical culture where someone posts a picture on instagram and it's like marriage is hard it is hard work which is basically the theme of this movie most days i want to kill my husband and he will walk in the door and say what is for dinner and i am so indignant but god gives me the grace to love him even though he will sit on the couch while i take care of his parents for him or whatever like It really seems like people don't like their spouses. It really seems like people don't like their spouses. And it also, I think, is dangerous to normalize the idea that marriage should be really hard and bad. I don't think it's bad to say, you know, work hard for your marriage or work hard for your long-term relationships. But I do think it's a problem if you're just normalizing the idea that, like, yes, it sucks. But if you work hard, you can overcome it, kind of. Like, sure, there will be sucky periods in any interpersonal relationship, romantic or not. But if it generally sucks, that might say something about the relationship. If every day is a struggle, there might be something wrong. And if you seem to genuinely find yourself disliking your spouse, and it's hard to even pretend you like them, hmm, maybe reconsider. If I can jump back to Kirk Cameron, I have one other funny story about him with this movie. Okay. So the way they got Kirk Cameron was around the time Facing the Giants was coming out, Alex Kendrick was like at the airport and ran into Kirk Cameron there. And Kendrick had like a bunch of DVDs in his bag and just gave one to Kirk Cameron. And Cameron, I guess, like watched it on a laptop on the plane or something. But like within a day, calls Alex Kendrick, says, I love this movie. I'm going to show it to my kids. I can't wait to watch it again. Whatever your next movie is, I'm in. Which is huge for these guys who are like junior pastors in charge of like video production for a church who made a movie and now like a name wants to be involved with them. So then when they're making Fireproof, naturally, they reach out to Kirk Cameron and they say, hey, we're making another movie. It's about a like hot firefighter. And then they say, Kirk Cameron, would you like to come audition? That's iconic. They made him try out. Good for them. Respect yourself. Make sure you know it's out there. And to be fair, he is by far the best performance in the movie. I mean, yes. Like, he is the only one who is an actor. Well, Aaron Bathia, who plays Catherine, I found out she was working at Disney World at the time, and I could not find out doing what job. So she might have been an actor as well. Like, oh my god, yes, but also... Yes. Okay. (laughs) 
Kirk Cameron uh, was not paid a salary. There was like a donation to the camp that he runs. Everything else is voluntary. Everything else is donations. They like paid for a couple of crew members, but all the other actors are volunteers from the church. Like all the locations were donated. The Albany Fire Department had just bought a bunch of new trucks that they hadn't brought into service yet. So they're using brand new fire trucks that were loaned to them. Okay. (laughs) This movie, I gotta say, the fact that there's one fire and at one point the fire in the window kind of looks like it's just TV screens behind a window. It definitely is. Was really funny. I thought there would be so much more fire. Mark, you brought up like the difference in sort of quality filmmaking between this and something like Passion of the Christ or Noah. And I think you're right about that. But I think you probably have not watched a lot of like church produced movies. And Rachel, I think you have. And I've seen a couple. And I'd be kind of interested to see some of the Kendrick Brothers more recent movies like Overcomer was their last theatrical one. Because to me, Fireproof exists in a really weird space where like it is substantially better than other church-produced movies. It looks a lot better. The acting is a lot better, even beyond Kirk Cameron. But it's not quite at the level that you would expect from, like, an actual professional film. Like, it's in this weird medium space where you get the feeling of, like, this is a movie that is made for the audience of church films. It's not made for a wider American audience, which is kind of why I think, like, the movie has kind of an odd presentation of Christianity, where... Like, we don't see Caleb's conversion ever. We don't really ever see him engage much with Christianity, except by the end of the movie, he cares about Christianity. And I feel like in a in a movie intended for a wider audience, they would be trying to bring that audience to a conversion moment. But because this has an assumed audience of basically people at church, it's all framed around, like, get more in touch with your religion, as opposed to doing that work. One of the most interesting things is there's, like, no pastor in this movie. The conversion is done by his friend and his dad. Usually there's, like, a pastor that helps along the way. And a lot of the time it is a... I feel like a lot of times it is a friend because, you know, like, to teach you that you should minister. But in this, there's, like, no scene at church until they get... renew their vows. And, by the way, the pastor there is Alex Kendrick. Of course it is. These guys are, like, it's the weird thing of, like, the Kendrick brothers are a brand name in Christian pop culture, but it's the, you know, kind of like with, like, Christian music or stuff like that, it's a brand name that is anonymous to people outside it, where, like, a new Kendrick brothers movie is a big deal. There's a stat on their Wikipedia page that is, they are the only directing, like, the two of them together, the only directors besides Rob Reiner to have three movies with an A-plus cinema score. Oh my god. And like, an A-plus cinema score basically means every person who walked out of the movie on opening night was like, that movie exactly matched my expectations. Like, to get an A is like pretty good. A-plus means everybody said it. Which does not necessarily mean it's a good movie. It just means it's a predictable movie. Right. It's a really rare score. Only two movies have gotten it this year. and They are The Woman King and Top Gun Maverick. Two real crowd pleasers. It's a little more common for Christian movies. Well, yeah, because the people that go see Christian movies know what to expect and then get what they expect. Right, they've bought into that already. All right. Should we talk about the romance of this movie? I mean, I think we we must, right? You know, it's fireproof. It was a, a Christian film sensation. It was the biggest independent film of 2008. Oh, my God. It launched a, uh, a popular spinoff book that Rachel got from the library. I cannot believe you read it. I think it was an important contribution to our conversation. Oh, it absolutely was. 
it was. But at what cost to your mental health? <laughs> uh, extreme cost to my mental health. Thank you for acknowledging that. <laughs> like, shout out to a real one, Rachel, for reading the worst book and poisoning her brain even more for this podcast. I make so many sacrifices, and yet I have still not received the t-shirt I was promised in 2018 with pictures of both of your faces on it. I don't remember agreeing to that. Will is who agreed to it. This is a Facebook comment feud from four years ago. Oh, well, that I, would explain four that. Four and a half years, I bring it up as frequently as possible. What's funny is, as you both know, I was not really friends with you all when you started this podcast. I was just a fan of the podcast. And as simply a fan of the podcast, Will promised me this shirt. And now I'd like to think that we are all pretty close friends. I, I have made custom-made t-shirts for Will and for Mark, and I have never received one. I will never make a custom t-shirt with my face on it. That's a promise I can stand behind. I've made a mug. What? That's as far as I'll go. This One of my Nick? anniversary gifts or birthday gifts to Nick was mugs with couple pictures of us on it. I think that Nick is wonderful, and I really don't want to break up your marriage but are you saying that if i am in a relationship with you then as an anniversary gift maybe uh no i again will will is who made this promise will is who i am holding to this promise and we'll see if it ever happens given the sacrifices i make for and the work that i put into making this podcast great Including going to the point of becoming friends with you all so I can uh, help out even more. I checked my Facebook for the first time in a really long time since like maybe a year. And the people that sent me happy birthday messages included my high school English teacher. So shout out <laughs> to Mr. Thomas. <laughs> Mr. Thomas, if you're a listener, send us a tweet at Love Love Pod. <laughs> but don't believe them if they tell you that they will send you merch. Uh, all right. So I think we need to dive into the romance of this movie because it is very weird. <laughs> it's quite strange. And of course, I assume we're talking about the romance between Caleb, who is married to a woman with the same first initial as him, and his best friend Michael at the firehouse, who they are clearly having sex there every night. Everything, like, I texted you before you had seen this, like, it is a perfectly logical reading of that movie to read it that the two of them are having sex and that he wants to have a boat in order for them to like have a place to get away together. Because then every time Catherine talks about like, you know, what you do on that boat, like every derisive comment, it sounds like she's upset that he's having like a gay relationship on the side with his friend. And she also gets really annoyed. Like, ugh, I assumed you would be having dinner with Michael again. He is putting away a third of his salary for this boat. <laughs> and complaining that his wife has a full-time job to pay for expenses as he's putting away 33% of his salary for a boat. So this was clearly pre-housing bubble pop writing. <laughs> just the boat thing is so funny. Like, you could do a pretty good drinking game just every time they say boat in this movie if you wanted to get pretty messed up. I mean, the absolute funniest moment to me is when he's looking at pictures of a boat online. Well, it's when he's looking at pictures of a boat online and then and the pop-up pop comes up. up that's like, you want to see some ladies? And it's like, just like a weird bad headshot 
and it's clearly going to give his computer a virus, but he's, like, shaking, trying to resist clicking oh, on what? it. Oh, my God. It's so funny how much he's, sh- like, he's shaking. And he has to, like, get up and walk away, and he's, like, looking furtively over his shoulder at this pop-up. My childhood computer, when I was maybe 10 years old, somehow got infected with a bad virus. I'm sure I am probably accidentally the one who did it, because I was spending a lot of time on Neopets back then, and, like, going to random places on the internet from neopods but it got a bad virus where you would click on a link that was a normal link but you would get redirected to a porn site and that is how i learned several new words and also several new activities and my parents were not pleased like they had a talk with me about uh clicking on links that i did not know about which was a good talk to have with me but then I was annoyed because I lost my computer privileges, not because I had done anything wrong, but because my parents didn't want me seeing this pornography that could pop up at any time on the computer. Anyway, that's how I learned the F word, which has become very useful to me. In it's a my mantra. Anger mantras. Yeah. I'm almost certain I learned the F word when my dad was driving. How did you learn the F word, Will? I don't know. I genuinely do not know. I can't remember the exact moment because I feel I've known it my whole life. But my dad is a notorious road swearer. And it's also the only time I heard my mom swear for most of my life is when someone was a bad driver in front of her. I learned it because I had heard people talk about, quote, the F word, but I didn't know what word it was. And then my parents took a couple days or maybe like a week to discover that there was a virus on the computer because... It was, I don't know, 2004, and so we weren't all constantly spending all of our time on the computer. Or I was, because I was 10. But um, something came up on the computer. I knew it was bad. My friend Bailey was over at my house, and I went to my dad and said, like, this is what happened, da-da-da. This is the website it sent me to, but it's not what I clicked on, and the F word was part of the URL. And I said it to him, just, like, very innocently, like, oh, the URL was blah, blah, F word, blah, blah. And my friend Bailey is like, oh, my gosh, you are about to get in so much trouble because she had older brothers. And so she had seen what happens when you say the F word in front of your parents. And my dad was just like, oh, okay, don't go on the computer and don't say that word anymore. And then as a 10-year-old, I had so much existential, like, angst and distress because i had said the f word and i didn't mean to i didn't even know what it was but i had said it and my choir teacher for some reason had told all of us that anytime you make a sound it echoes into the universe for the rest of eternity (laughs) and so i hadn't just said it it was echoing over and over for the rest of eternity and now i chant it when i'm angry alone i still sometimes feel guilty about saying stupid on the bus in kindergarten And that's called mental illness. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, So every week we break down the romance of a movie into five points to help guide conversation. As our guest, Rachel, can you please take us to point one? Sure. Happily. So point one is the setting of the movie and the first precipitating incident, we'll say, Caleb and Catherine have a bad marriage. Although, as I'm looking at this, maybe I should have included 
a point zero. I was just thinking this might be a point zero movie. Do I have permission to insert a point zero? Absolutely. Okay, point zero. Assuming that your point zero is what I'm thinking it should be, because it should be part of this. Point zero. We see a little girl's room. Yes, we're we good. We never see any people, but it is just sort of a camera panning over clearly a little girl's room, and we hear a little girl who's maybe three or so, three or four years old, based on her intonation, saying, like, Mommy, I want to marry Daddy. (laughs) You do. Catherine, you can't marry Daddy. He's my husband. Well, when you're done being married, can I have him? (laughs) We'll never be done. You'll have to marry somebody else. Can I wear a white dress and white gloves? Sure, if you want to. Will we live happily after ever? Mm-hmm. If you marry somebody who really, really loves you. Like Daddy. Yes, like Daddy. So this movie starts off by establishing that our female lead has an electric complex that will never be acknowledged. Well, I, I uh, This is a non-sequitur, but at one point, Catherine says, Catherine, who works in a hospital, I never realized a stroke could affect a person this much about her mother that had a stroke. And I'm just like, you work every day in a hospital. You think you'd understand. I think she's like the communications director for the hospital. Like, I don't think she's a medical professional. Yeah, but you're still in the building every day. I think she's like the PR person for the hospital. Yeah. Which means she's covering up a lot of terrible things. <laughs> yeah, but the the biggest thing she's covering up is her desire to marry her father. Oh, God. Okay, back to point one. Okay, so back to point one, it is now the present, 25 years later, and Caleb and Catherine have a really bad, it is unhealthy, they should divorce. It is emotionally abusive. He is abusive, and she tells him that she wants a divorce, and he screams at her as she is backed up against a wall, like, that's fine with me, and then goes out into the yard and beats up his trash can. All right, you think I I put out house fires for myself or or rushed a car wreck at 2 a.m. for myself or pull a child's body out of a lake for myself? You have no idea what I go through. Oh, yeah, but what do you do around here other than watch TV and waste time on the Internet? You know what? If looking at that trash is how you get fulfilled, that's fine, but I will not compete with it. Well, I sure don't get it from you. And you won't. Because you care more about saving for your stupid boat and pleasing yourself than you ever did about me. Shut up! I'm sick of you! You disrespectful, ungrateful, selfish woman! How dare you say that to me! You constantly nag me and you drain the life out of me! I'm tired of it! If you can't give me the respect I deserve, look at me! Then what's the point of this marriage? You want out. That's fine with me. Shout out to Mr. Rudolph also. (laughs) I love Mr. Rudolph. Mr. Rudolph, they're just like silent old neighbor who's just always like standing perfectly still watching Caleb be the most unreasonable person on the planet. Yeah, this is a terrible marriage. They should get divorced. I I was glad when Caleb agreed, even if he agreed like aggressively. But it's clear that like there's just complete resentment and even disdain going in both directions 
And then every bone in my body wanted that to be like, okay, movie's over. We're done. Like, they got a divorce. That's it. Of course, that wasn't going to happen. But more Christian media, please, that acknowledges that divorce can, in fact, be a good thing. It's a sad thing often, but most of the time when a divorce is happening, it is for the best. And I think that couples being shamed by the church, which in many cases for them could be a primary support system, is really bad. Like even in the best case divorce and is even worse when the divorce is happening in the context of abuse. Do we think they have separate finances? There are a lot of interesting references to like his money versus her money. I think that they started having separate finances when she started working. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, that's the vibe I got, is that he used to be the sole breadwinner, she got a new job, and that they just, like, didn't merge finances at that point. It's striking to me that they don't have children. It feels unusual for this kind of movie. It makes the divorce much less complicated, which serves the movie well. But it's something that struck me as notable. All right, so... I think this brings us to point two. Yeah, so Caleb is telling his buddies at the fire station, like, oh, my everyone respects me because I'm a hero except my wife. And now she's trying to divorce me. And then he complains to his dad about it. And his dad says, wait a second. Have you signed anything yet? Have you given her official agreement? Do me a favor and don't do anything until you look at this thing that I'm going to send you. And what he sends him is a handwritten, in his handwriting, book called The Love Dare with a little note that says, you know that your mom and I were having some troubles, but things are so much better now. And this book is why. Please follow along what it says for the next 40 days before you agree to divorce Catherine. It's not working, Dad. What's not working? This whole love dare thing. It's not working. Tell me what's going on. I have been doing everything that it says to do, and she has completely rejected all of it. Caleb, this process takes 40 days, not four. What is the point of going down a dead-end road when you know it's not going anywhere? You don't know that yet. Caleb, you're not a quitter. And something tells me you're doing just enough to get by. Am I right? What's funny to me is that, like, he gets this 40-day stall going on, and, like, he has to know Catherine is, during that time, like, seeing a lawyer and stuff like that, and he just isn't. Like, he should be doing some kind of preparation for, like, okay, and if she still divorces me, I should, like, have a lawyer ready to go. But it seems like once he buys in to the love dare, at least, so about halfway through, he just, like, ceases to engage with the reality of the idea that they might get divorced at all. Speaking of 40-day, roughly, stalls on a divorce happening, did you all, when you were growing up, ever get that chain email? I feel like this episode is establishing me as somebody who was very online circa, like, 2003. But that chain email that was like, this man tells his wife that he wants a divorce, and she says, you know... I I don't understand why. To be clear, why. I did not get this chain email. I, I'm upset about this. And he says, you know, you can have the house and the car. I want to go be with my lover instead. And she's like, okay, I will grant you a divorce, but you have to carry me over 
like the threshold of our house every morning for the next month and then I'll divorce you. And he's like, okay, fine. So the first day he does it and like, she's kind of heavy and it's really awkward. And like their kid is watching. Then every day he does it, it gets like easier and easier to carry her. And it's like less and less awkward. And their kid is happier and happier to see his parents together And on the 30th day, he drives to his lover's house and is like, I can't be with you anymore. I want to be with my wife. And then drives home. And then the chain email like changes fonts or colors or something to show that it's important because he gets home and his wife is there and she has died of the cancer that she knew that she had. (laughs) And that's why it got easier and easier for him to carry her because she was getting lighter and lighter, but she wanted to make sure that her child's last memories of his parents together were of his father carrying his mother around, not of his parents getting a divorce and then his mom immediately dying. What? And this was a chain email. This was a big chain email in, the early and, and the lesson of this is don't get divorced. Your spouse might just die. Well, it's don't get divorced. Great advice. Or don't have marital problems or else your spouse might not tell them that they tell you that they have cancer. I don't know. You can, if you Google like chain email cancer lover, I don't know. Like you'll be able to find this. I am sure it is somewhere online if you want to read the whole thing. Well, wow. I will see if I can send it to you to post on social media. Of if course, that is people, something you'd be people need in. to hear this story. Anyway, this movie really reminded me of that. The weird, like, I will give you the divorce, but just give me. I guess he never agreed to give her the divorce. But, like, you want a divorce, but just do this weird thing for the next month and change. And then it'll change your perspective on marriage. But, spoiler, in this one, she does not die of secret cancer so at this point in the movie he's like doing the love dare he's like like every day there's some challenge and he's like grumpy about it at first but he's like going doing it he's like making his wife coffee in the morning buying her some flowers and she is very put off by it and in fact thinks that he is doing this just to butter her up so she will not be as hard on him in divorce negotiations yeah i mean let's be clear he does not indicate that he is attempting to fix the marriage before this attempt so she doesn't have any reason to believe otherwise right as far as she knows he has already agreed to get divorced so then i think that moves us into point three which is in kind of the background Catherine has been having what starts off as a very just innocuous totally appropriate collegial relationship with a doctor who also works at the hospital. I don't remember his last name, but his first name is Gavin. So I called him Dr. Gavin in all of my notes. Eating alone? Well, hello, Dr. Keller. Gavin. Gavin, sorry, how are you? I'm doing well. Just uh, need a place to put my plate down. Is this spot reserved? Oh, um, well, Deidre was supposed to meet me, but you're welcome to join us. Well, if you're gonna twist my arm, I don't want any trouble. (laughs) Are you going to eat wearing your clean white coat? Well, I do need to keep up with the latest fashions. It seems all the doctors are wearing one these days. But it's probably not too smart while I'm eating. I didn't know doctors cared about fashion. Well, we have to keep up with the attractive fashions the public relations employees wear. I see. Well, since there's only one person in that category, I'm sure she'd feel honored. She should. 
She's pretty amazing. Okay, you say it's innocuous, but I feel like the movie treats it as dodgy from the beginning. A full emotional affair from the get-go. Right, like, when he's introduced, it's just like, oh, we haven't met. And she's like, hi, like, hi, Dr. Such-and-Such. And And he goes, oh, call me Gavin, in a, like, perfectly normal tone. And then everyone else in the room gives each other, like, shocked looks. Like they're watching the two people have sex in front of them. But as things are getting... Worse and worse with Catherine refusing to respond to Caleb's overtures, which again, seems very valid given that he has given no indication that he is trying to fix their marriage. Uh, She and Dr. Gavin have eventually crossed the line into full flirtation. Dr. Gavin gives her a red rose and a nice card. And as she says, it's just really treating her like a lady and treating her right in a way that her husband has not done in years. Also relevant Very early in the movie, they had a big fight and we saw her take off her wedding ring and put it in a drawer. And so Dr. Gavin has never seen any indication that she's married. Meanwhile, Caleb is like doing the love dare and talking to his friends at the fire station and like doing weird fire station hijinks. (laughs) But there is a long metaphor given by his friend and possible lover, Michael, that leans into the gender essentialism of the Kendrick brothers, where, you know, men and women are like salt and pepper. You need both of them to make a good meal, but they've got to stick together. You never see just salt on its own or just pepper on his own. And then Michael proceeds to glue the salt and pepper shaker together to show this, which is dumb because then it means you can't just use salt or just use pepper, a thing you often want to do. Or use at even different amounts. Yes, it feels like salt and pepper are actually not illustrating what this movie wants them to demonstrate. I also can't remember when this happens, but at some point we discover that Michael, who we've seen has a fantastic relationship with his wife, is actually on his second marriage. And this is this huge source of shame for him where he talks about like, I don't know, I kind of got the sense that he wished he could still be married to his first wife, where things had gotten bad and they mutually divorced but then he got right with god and he tried to go find her again but she had already remarried and so now he's with this second wife which i just thought was so disrespectful to people who have remarried and also spouses who are somebody's second spouse rachel people who are remarried don't deserve respect okay what if your spouse dies mark uh that's fine but still I think that that is the response they would give you. Yeah, this movie is very much a, you're supposed to get married once and do whatever it takes. And that's why, like, Michael, who is the model of good marriage, has, like, all this shame where he's like, I'm only supposed to be married once, but I've done it twice. You've got to avoid putting yourself in that situation. Don't be like me. I just think especially if you're in a culture, which evangelical Christianity is, where you are being really encouraged to get married quite young, like, before your brain has fully developed... And before you have fully developed as a person and maybe have a clear idea of what it is you want in life, like divorce, you know, like I said, I think it's a sad thing. I think people are not generally hoping for a divorce, but I think it's just really unfortunate how demonized it is because I do think that there are plenty of scenarios, even when abuse is not present, when it is the best thing for all people involved, and it is a hard thing to do, and people should be celebrated 
for being willing to recognize and respect that this actually is the best move. And this movie isn't even that because he is emotionally abusive to her, potentially financially abusive to her before what we see in the film. And under what possible circumstances can you justify staying with an abuser, which is nothing against people who are being abused and have not been able to leave and everything against a culture telling them or telling anyone that it is a good and noble thing to stay with an abuser. Yeah, I mean, I think you're getting at like sort of the core problem with the culture that is reflected in this movie and in, I assume, the book. Yeah, something in the book that comes up is, uh, I think there's an entire day about it, just like love is enduring or something like that, where it's like, if you truly love your spouse, then you should be willing to do anything it takes. There's even kind of an implication of like, even if they end up divorcing you, you should love them enough that you are willing to take them back once they've seen the light and they're coming back to you. And again, it's just such a problem. I mean, this is, you know, uh, many scales of magnitude lower, but there was a point in my life where I was in kind of a bad relationship that was ending and the other person said something to me about like, you know, the time is not right now, but I do think 10 years from now, we are both going to be ready. And gross. now is not the time, but if we just give it 10 years, to be clear, I think I was being broken up with for somebody else, like specifically, but like, if you just give it 10 years, then, then that's when the time is going to be right. And that's when we're going to find our way back to each other, which was terrible because I it made me leave feeling like I still had some sort of obligation. And for several months made me feel very awkward trying to go on other dates because like, what did that mean about 10 years from now? And then I wisened up and was like, actually like only a jerk would say that guess you're a jerk and we never need to speak again and have been fine. But just that ethic of like, if you truly love someone, you are willing to go through whatever they put you through and God will reward you. And the book, in fact, cites how Paul, the, uh, was Paul an apostle? Yeah. Yeah. What, anyway, like the famous Paul of the Bible, formerly known as Saul, was beaten in the name of Jesus. And people would say, how are you able to endure all of this horrible torture? And he would say, it's because of God's love for me and Jesus's love for me. And that is the type of love that you should seek to replicate in your marriage. And like, no, absolutely not. You should not be enduring violence of any kind, physical or emotional or financial. You shouldn't be enduring any of that for the sake of your marriage. And creating that comparison is irresponsible and dangerous. I think we all we all agree the love dare is bad. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but again, I just I it I had read maybe two thirds or so of it when I watched the movie, and then read the last third. I think I watched the movie a couple of days ago. So over the last couple of days is when I read the last third, and it was really frustrating watching the movie because I could see like these things that seem like maybe a little weird or like maybe not great are so much worse in the book. And then once I was finishing up reading it, number one, it was interesting because I'd be like, oh, well, I guess this is the dare that inspired him to buy all the medical equipment, which we'll get into in a later point. But also, it's just so much more damaging than the movie is. And if people have watched the movie and seen, oh, this is really good, I want to get in on this, 
And I was coming into it like, hopefully I'm going to have this like funny book with things to make fun of. And instead I was like, this is horrible and very damaging and dangerous. And nobody should go to this book for advice. Anyway, so getting into point four, Kirk Cameron, uh, Caleb is in a house fire where he gets injured and he's taken to the hospital, and of course... But it mostly just seems like his arm is kind of sore. Yeah, and he has a few burns. He takes off his mask and gives it to a child who's in the house that he's getting out, which, like, fine, but then there's never any talk of his level of smoke inhalation, which really concerned me. I think the smoke mostly went into his wound, <laughs> and so it's his arm that had all the smoke uh, stuff, but not his lungs. So... Like, there was, like, a suction through his elbow. He is taken to the hospital, and of course, the doctor who takes care of him is Dr. Gavin, and that is how Dr. Gavin finds out that Catherine is married, and that is how Caleb finds out that Catherine has been having, is it even an emotional affair? Like, she has made it very clear that she does not want to be married at him and sees their marriage. Oh, yeah, it doesn't really, it, like, wouldn't really count anymore if he was actually signing the paper that he's supposed to. And he has given her no indication that he will not sign the paper once he has them. He has, in fact, given verbal agreement to get divorced. Yeah, no, she is, like, she has done nothing wrong. And, like, that's the thing where, like, I do think the movie generally thinks Caleb is the problem. It is striking the degree to which Catherine doesn't really do anything wrong and ultimately just goes back with him because of, like, financial assistance that he gives her. Well, the financial assistance makes her realize that he is putting her ahead of the boat. But yeah, so Kirk Cameron goes in and, or Caleb, goes in and yells at Dr. Gavin for not respecting his marriage. Dr. Keller? Yes? Caleb Holt, I need a word with you, please. Well, like, it's really not a good time. I'm just about to make my rounds. I think you need to make time. This is concerning Catherine, my wife. All right. What can I do for you? I know what you're doing. And I have no intention of stepping aside as you try to steal my wife's heart. I've made some mistakes, but I still love her. So just know I am going after her too. And since I'm married to her, I'd say I've got a head start. And then we find out that apparently Dr. Gavin is married, but that never gets flushed out or clarified. Yeah, Gavin opens his desk, pulls out a wedding ring, thinks about putting it on, then puts it back in. So we don't know, is he married and not wearing a ring at work? Is he separated? Like, it could be just, it could be the same situation that Catherine is in. Yeah. Because she is also leaving her wedding ring in a drawer. I feel like my take on that was he probably is separated. Maybe his wife is dead. Considering whether to go back to his spouse. I mean, I don't know why I said spouse. Obviously, it's his wife. This is so heteronormative. But anyway, Catherine finds out that somebody donated money for her parents to receive some medical equipment that they need and initially assumes it was Dr. Gavin and goes and thanks him. Because she had just been talking to him about it. Yeah, goes and thanks him. And he like implied that he would help. Yeah, and he says, oh, sure, you know, least I could do, happy to help. But then later we find out that he did give several hundred dollars, which is nice of him. Yes, his reaction is perfectly reasonable. Yes, but Caleb gave tens of thousands of dollars that he had been saving for the boat. And that makes her realize that he values her and she 
has a tearful, you know that you're an amazing man and I love you. And then they renew their vows. And if Kevin told you that I love you, I do. Something has changed in you, Caleb. And I want what happened to you to happen to me. It can. Is it too late to ask you to grow old with me? Yeah. And and then, like, all the other firefighters are, like, trying to look through the window to see the two of them making out. Which is very weird. There's like a childish quality to most of the other guys in the fire station. It's the they're weird. I gotta say. I'm also like, as a full fledged adult, not like a fourteen year old. Is it really that interesting to see someone kiss their partner? I mean, I think these performers, I'm pretty confident, are just like the Kendrick brothers, like church buddies. Like Mark, if you think about like Jesse Gemstone's crew in the Righteous Gemstones. Oh, yes. Like, I think these firefighters are the Kendrick Brothers versions of that. I think you are extremely accurate. These are the scenes that are them just, like, goofing around the way that they goof around together when they're away from their wives. Yeah. Oh, my God. All right. So, do we find the romance between Caleb and Catherine believable? I think this is an interesting one because certainly, as we've talked about before, like, you know, certainly believe that there are bad marriages and emotionally abusive relationships. I certainly believe that there would be a lot of pressure on both of them to get back together. And that if Caleb put in a modicum of effort, there would then be a lot of pressure on Catherine to be like, oh, look, he's changed. But even this feels like not, it it feels like she goes back to him very easily. It's been, what, 50 days at this point? I don't know that she goes back to him really easily. It's not until... Like, he has started to step it up a little bit. Like, you know, he makes her the nice dinner and she is still not interested in it. It's just when she hears that he has given the money for her parents' medical equipment and she knows that that came out of his boat money. And so I think she sees that as the sign of, oh, he has changed, which she has had no reason really to believe that he has changed before that and so i don't know that it's 100 percent believable in part because this movie was also really boring and i guess real relationships are boring too but i feel like i believe every component part of it i'm not sure that i believe it all put together yeah i mean part of it too this and this is kind of stepping on the like do we think they'd stay together and in the movie we cut forward to them renewing their vows at least but i think we also have to weigh this not just against like the stuff that we see in the movie, the like, you know, yelling and like snotty comments and things like that. But the fact that we're told it has been two years of like a terrible marriage and even like the generosity of buying the medical equipment for her parents has to be weighed against years and years of this kind of behavior. Yeah. Uh, sure. But I don't know. I, I'm not saying I find it entirely believable, but just given number one, her parents need this equipment so badly, and this is really significant. Because Dr. Gavin has also turned against her ever since he got yelled at by Caleb. And so I think she is in a vulnerable position where she is responsive to this. 
again, getting into the whether they would stay together, I don't know how long that responsiveness then lasts. But I'm going to say the sum total of it, I just think it's not, it's better than a lot of church movies, but it's not a great movie. And that dings some believability for me, but I do believe every component part. So where would you rate this out of 10? I think I would rate this a six. Some of the parts for me is honestly a nine. Like, I think... I thought that's where you were going to wind up. Uh, no, I think everything is pretty believable, but it loses points for the way that it is put together. Among other things, what a jerk Caleb is to his mom, which... Oh my he, God. like, hates his mom. He's, he hates his mom. It's horrifying to watch. No, just okay. But then he immediately is like, never mind, mom, you're great because you did the love dare on dad, and I'm sorry for being a jerk to you. What's wild is, like, he hates his mom, and we observe that as viewers, but also it's recognized in the movie. Like, his dad is like, I understood you would not go for the love dare if you knew your mom had written it. Yeah, so it loses points for me on that. It loses points for me because it's boring. It loses points for me because I needed a clearer timeline, but I think it would make more sense if they were both a little younger. So there are some nitpicky things that, frankly, pull the score down to, like, a six. But each component part on its own, I would probably give a nine. But when you put it all together, it's too boring to be believable. (laughs) Mark, what do you think? I was going to go for, yeah, like a six sounds good to me. I'm an eight on this. Oh, justify that, please. I mean, I, I think all of what you said, right? Like, I found the pieces of it pretty believable. And I guess I just didn't find it dragged down quite as much as you did. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. They're both so so boring. Well, the other thing is, in your ranking, are you including the believability that Caleb and Michael are having an affair? Because weirdly, I think that would pull it up for me. Yeah, that's how I watched the movie, and that's a part of it. So I think that that could be some of the Yeah, I'd pull it up if that was true. It It sounds like nobody here thinks Caleb is dateable. Uh, No. No. What about Catherine? No. No. She's a pretty boring person. Yeah, Yeah. maybe she What is is her personality? Maybe she's dateable in a vacuum, but I would not want to date her. Like, she should go, she and Dr. Gavin should get together, honestly. They're both boring people. Right, so they would work well together. You know, I think that there are some couples where you just recognize, like, both of you are boring, and it is nice that you have found each other, and you can be boring together. I just hope I don't end up, like, seated next to you at an event or something. So if you did have to pick one person in this movie to date, whom would you choose? Uh, the neighbor, obviously. Obviously, the correct answer. Yeah, I think Mrs. Rudolph for me, though. Because she has one line, which is just being mean to her husband, but in a cute way. Sure. I would want to date Mr. Rudolph because I would want him to give me all the gossip of what he's seeing around the neighborhood. I just got the vibe that he was good at grilling. So that that's working for me. All right. Do you think Caleb and Catherine will stay together? No. 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 It might be a couple years. I think that unless they are having fertility issues, which is why they don't have a kid yet, they are going to get pregnant about six months from now. Then they're going to have a kid nine months later, which is putting us 15 months into the future. When that kid is between the ages of two and five, potentially there's a second kid, they will actually split up. Yeah, I think that's about right. Now, Mark? Yes. This comes out of the Christian film tradition. Obviously, there is a a grand and robust Christian music tradition. This movie actually includes a bunch of Christian rock songs. 
uh, mostly briefly, should Fireproof be made into a stage musical, touring from church to church? Um, no. I mean, I don't want to see it. I think it would be very popular, but I don't want to see it. The only Christian marriage musical that I will accept is actually a Christian, like, Easter, I don't know, musical called The Bride. Okay. (laughs) It's fabulous. It is on YouTube, and it is about how the church is the bride of Christ, but also the church is a literal small child who then matures in her faith that's how they pronounce the word and uh i feel like i've talked about this on the podcast before it's fabulous very campy they're like pyrotechnics it's awesome okay okay before we wrap things up quickly mark i just want to take a moment to acknowledge this week the release of our fireproof episode marks five years of us doing this show oh my god that's so many years yeah it's been it's been five years since while you were sleeping and howard the duck and all of that I feel better about not remembering every movie we've done, because it has been five years. Would you indulge me in a short game in honor of our fifth birthday? Yes, of course. So last year, to mark our 200th episode, I asked you to identify all of the films that we had given a 10 out of 10. You know, those Congo quality films. Yeah, of course. So in honor of Fireproof being a bad movie, I was wondering, there are nine movies that at least one of us has given a zero to. Okay. And I was wondering if you can name the nine movies. Howard the Duck. Okay, yes. Howard the Duck. I gave a zero. You gave a negative five. Yep. I stand by it. Okay. Um, A zero. Was it any of the weird, bad movies we watched with Catherine? Um, no. No fever pitch. No notebook. Hmm. Are any of them recent? Um, the most recent one is from last year, from 2021. Okay. Hmm. Can I have a hint? Yeah, so Howard the Duck is the first one on the list. That was our second episode. The other one from the first year, from the Heart of Podness days, is also about a romance between a human and an animal. Oh, um, oh, B-movie. B-movie. We both gave a zero to B-movie. Yes. There are three direct-to-TV or streaming Christmas movies on here. Okay. Christmas Kiss. Christmas Kiss, not on the list. Okay. Candy Coated Christmas. Candy Coated Christmas is the most recent one. Okay. Um, What other Christmas movies? A Princess, Princess Switch. Yes. Night Before Christmas. Night Before Christmas, not on the list. Okay. Did we cover that or did we just watch it? We did cover that. Okay. That movie ended with a sequel tease that has yet to be fulfilled. Oh, right. Okay. Um, Another Christmas movie. Spirit of Christmas. Spirit of Christmas. You gave it a one, which is maybe what was throwing you off, but I gave it a zero. Okay. All right, there were four remaining. These are all movies that we both gave zeros to. Uh, One of them is set at Christmas, but we did not cover it as a Christmas episode. Hmm. It was long a contender for worst movie we ever covered. Oh, God. Can I have another hint? Um, it is an adaptation of A Christmas Carol. Ghosts? Uh, oh, um, Ghosts of Girlfriend Past. There you go. Okay. All right. The oldest one in here is a James Mangold picture in honor of the upcoming Indiana Jones 5. Oh, my God. Uh, is it like an adventure movie? It is. Well, there, certainly one of its leads has an adventurous spirit, uh, but he's an inventor. Inventor? And if he were to disappear, 
his important invention might disappear as well. The Invisible Man? <laughs> like, what? Oh, this this doesn't sound familiar at all. No one would describe this movie as elevated, but that's language we have thanks to... Oh my god, Kate and Leopold. <laughs> Kate and Leopold. <laughs> um, Alright, we got two left. Okay. Both fairly chaotic movies. One starring, I would say, one of your favorite movie stars, who we've done a couple movies of. And the other, a favorite of, like, Teenage Boys. So Megan Fox? No, sorry. Um, oh. The star's not a favorite of Teenage Boys. The The movie is a favorite of Teenage oh, Boys. Oh, okay. With an actress I like. No, these are so separate many. movies. The two movies. Oh, okay. Popular with Teenage Boys. I need another hint on that one. Um, It's not a thing I can approve of because it's a teacher-student romance. <sighs> so it's not, e- but it's not Easy A. Teachers, we've done a teacher-student romance movie? Yes, but uh, you might not be thinking of it because they're both adults. Okay, can I have another hint? It's not an earnest movie, but there's a back-to-school quality to it. Oh, Billy Madison? Yes. <laughs> okay. And so your remaining movie, as I said, it stars one of your favorite female stars. Another of your fam- favorite female actresses is, like, the other woman in it. Is it Death Becomes Her? It is not Death Becomes Her. Okay. I've been, I am impressed that every wrong answer you've had is actually a movie we covered. Like, you haven't gone I, off that list at all. Yeah, I'm feeling pretty good about that, at least. This movie would have been a good one for our guest next episode because the male lead of this movie studies rocks. But he has... Jurassic Park 3? No. <laughs> it's one of the screwball comedies we did in 2021. We did a couple of those. Oh, um... Oh, um, uh, 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 oh, what's it called? Um, what's up, Doc? What's up, Doc? There you go. You got all nine. And I didn't name a single movie we haven't covered. I was really impressed with that. I mean, okay, pulling out of 260 movies just blind is going to be tough. I definitely needed the hints, but I feel pretty good about my performance. Yeah, you did well. And you got a couple of them right off the bat. Yes. Well, Howard the Duck, I will never forget. Well, yeah. So, you know, Mark, I just wanted to do that. We've been doing this for five years. It's been a blast. We'll keep doing it. I mean, we have recorded all the way through at least one more month. Yeah. So keep on the lookout for year six when we do another quiz and I will continue to do my best. I actually got the two of you a present in honor of your five-year episode. Is it the love dare? Oh. (laughs) I noticed that there were pages in that book when you were holding it up to us. That had just, like, lines on it. So you're clearly supposed to, like, put your own Love Dare notes in here. Oh, no. You're supposed to journal about your experience every day. But it is not the Love Dare. I got that from the library. I would not pay money for that book, even before I knew how bad it was. Um, Unlike both of you who paid money for the movie. No, it is kind of literary, though. I got you the gift of a book report. What, is there a new Princess Diaries book? No, in the National Treasure Book of Secrets episode, we talked about the National Treasure book series, and I read oh the my first God. book in the series and would like to tell you all just a, a short bit about it. I'm going to steal the Declaration of Independence. It is- so, uh, forgive me, it's been... <laughs> A year and a half since we did that episode. Are these about Nicolas Cage? No, no. They are about the Gates family through history. So this one takes place in Jamestown. 
So do they have history-based names about people from, like, the 14th century? <laughs> like, they can't be named for, like, Benjamin Franklin or Patrick Henry or whatever. But can they be named, like, like William Shakespeare Gates or, like, Thomas Cromwell Gates? Um, the main character's name is Samuel Thomas Gates. I don't know. I'm sorry. But in this book, Samuel Thomas Gates's father, Benjamin Gates, is a clockmaker in London, but also kind of a stupid man and loses all of his money, like, basically betting on an expedition that turns out to be a fake expedition. And so Sam and his brother will have to go to the New World to gain a fortune to send back to their father. And while they're on the ship on their way to Jamestown... They befriend someone else on the boat whose cousin has been in the New World for a long time and sent him and his brother clues to a great treasure, but the brother died and the brother was the one who was good at solving puzzles. Luckily, Sam is good at solving puzzles, so he says he'll help, but Jasper, another passenger on the boat... Always a red flag name. Jasper wants in on the treasure, and when Elias won't share the clues his cousin sent jasper kills elias and then jasper spends the rest of the book trying to kill sam and will and so he's the sean bean character yeah and like the girl that sam starts dating or like flirting with but basically we don't need to get into the details of the clues but they eventually find the treasure it turns out that it is a powhatan treasure that is not oh, oh good they're gonna steal from the Native Americans. Well, no, no, no. It's it's not at all valuable to the settlement, but they give it back to the Powhatans, which is able to stave off war happening because a war is about to happen between them and Jamestown, and they are helped in all of this by Pocahontas's sister, who <laughs> has befriended. Um, Pocahontas's sister is the funniest phrase you could like. That's funnier than just Pocahontas. <laughs> Yeah, Pocahontas' little sister has learned English very fluently and helps them solve all the clues. He, like, breaks into Chief Powhatan's log house at one point to look at his headdress because the headdress is a clue. Like, everything's a clue. All these clues have existed for, like, hundreds of years. Like, the lantern that happens to be on the ship is secretly a clue because... Elias's cousin remembered what it said. The cannon at Jamestown is a clue. There's like a whole clue that's predicated on the idea that the Powhatan know that Jamestown is the only Christian colony in the area. So they what? like give them a little map that involves drawing a cross what? to indicate Jamestown. A cross because is they just need to an go, X. They need to go toward Jamestown because it's the only Christian colony. But they get really tripped up by that one because at first they think it's the letter T and they're like very impressed that they've learned to write in English. I, that's really <laughs> overthinking two intersecting lines, which again, might I note, are an X, a common notation for the thing is there. And I would just say I felt that these clues it was all i'd say slightly less believable than the national treasure movie franchise clues but only very slightly because those are pretty outlandish too 10 out of 10 i think a great book for an eight or nine year old to read i'm 28 and still really enjoyed it and i will be excited to share on my next episode, whenever that is, about the second book in the series, which I also got. Happy five years, y'all! Oh my god. All right. 
what a great episode. Next week, we will be discussing a movie known and loved-ish only by geologists, from what I can understand. It is called The Core. We're here to talk about dumb science, our favorite rocks, and a romance that may or may not exist. <laughs> Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. All right, last question. What is the best piece of dating advice we got to fireproof our marriages? I have been racking my brain to come up with something funny, but to be perfectly honest, the best piece of advice I have from this is it is well and good to put effort into saving your relationship, but it is also okay to recognize that the best thing may be to let your relationship end. My best dating advice that I got from this, a thing that does substantially help a relationship, don't suck a third of your money into a boat. I mean, my advice is one he doesn't follow, but don't wait until the very end of the love dare to tell them you're doing the love dare so that they actually believe you when you try and be nice. But my real advice is don't do the love dare for the love of God. Well, in the book, it says that ideally you and your spouse should do the love dare together. But if you know that your spouse wouldn't be into it, then it's okay to do it in secret. And then if they later find out about it and call you on like, you're only do the, doing these nice things for me because they're in a book, then it gives you some strategies to convince them that they should not worry about the fact that you're only doing these things because they're in a book. I like the idea of a married couple oh doing God. the love dare off cycle like it's a coral round so like you start doing it and you get a week into it and then they start doing it and so then you're a little off cycle with each other doing different things do you think you and your wife should try that and report back on how it goes no i don't want to do the love day i don't want to read that book that is the correct call all right well until next time i'm gay and i'm a ginger so between the two of us we know everything there is to know about romance bye, bye. Yeah.